We're in a series called Awaken Sleeper. Awaken Sleeper. And God has been sitting on this series. I believe that it has truly been in season, on time, and right for us. And I wanna jump in today at Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, you know, the book of Acts is just wonderful reading. I mean, it's a fun read, because it's the Acts of the Apostle. It's how the apostle, apostles acted. It's what they did. So that's why it's called the book of Acts. It's a book of all of the deeds. It's a book of what the New, church, New Testament church looked like. And I wanna take you to Acts chapter 20, and the truth is that this particular passage, you could turn there in your Bible if you have it. Uh, you could Google it right now. You could go on your Bible app while I, while I just kind of set this up for a sec. Um, Acts chapter 20 is one of those places in Scripture that I would kind of hit whenever I was reading the Bible and then move on, right? And the more you read the Bible, you'll hit a story or a verse, and you'll hit it, and you're like, ooh, I need to, I need to sit on that sometime later, and I have never preached this story before, ever in my life. I've never preached this story before. I've been preaching since uh, 1991. I was in the class of 1991 because we are fun. We're the class of 91. <laughs> but um, now y'all know how old I am. But anyway, the, uh, this is one of those passages that this is the first time I've ever actually preached it, but I've always wanted to. And so when we start looking at Awakened Sleeper, I think you'll find that this story was made for this series. <laughs> okay, Acts chapter 20, verse seven. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul, the apostle Paul, he wrote a lot of the New Testament. Paul was starting churches left and right. He was just working so hard. Paul talked with them, the church, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. I just heard a preacher say, amen. Now, the Apostle Luke, the good doctor, is giving it to our buddy Paul. And you'll see that as we keep reading. Luke is the one who wrote the Acts of the Apostles. And as he's writing it, he's giving it to Paul. Okay, he's just like, he prolonged his speech until midnight. And he keeps on going. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul still talked longer. <laughs> Luke and Paul, they're bros. And here's the thing. If we're buddies and I'm making fun of you, that means I like you. That's the way guys roll. Y'all know that? Y'all know that this is the way guys roll. And, and inevitably, my spouse, Susan, she will inevitably say, man, is that okay? And I'm like, it's just dudes being dudes. We're, we're okay. But giving each other a hard time, I really believe Luke is giving Paul a hard time, as he just said, prolonged his speech until midnight, and a young man, as Paul still talked longer, and being overcome by sleep, he, Eutychus, the teenager, fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. So, homeboy fell asleep in church, <laughs> fell out of the window, okay? And it's funny, like, 
He's deep asleep in the window pane and then legs up. And he's gone. Not funny when he adds, he died. Okay? Um, Susan and I even have some friends, a pastor in Oklahoma City whose child fell from a, I don't know how many floors up and was left for dead. And miraculously, truly, a miracle of God that that child lived and is thriving today. But this was a stunning moment. Have you ever had a moment medically that was an interruption that arrested you and you were just doing your thing and then something happened and it was an accident or something happened to you that wasn't your fault and it interrupted maybe the next several months of your life? Or someone tragically passed and it, and it interrupted years of your life and it changed the arc of your story. So this is, it's kind of funny until you get to that part. He fell out of the window and he, he was dead. But Paul went down, bent over him, and taking him in his arms, such a compassionate moment, taking him in his arms, Eutychus the teenager said, do not be alarmed for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so then departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. They were a lot comforted. Okay. This is a powerful story. I believe this is a story that Luke included in this, pat, in this book. He included it for a reason. Not just a miraculous story to build your faith that Paul could raise from the dead, although it's no less than that. I believe it's so much more. I believe there's a message for us here and the title of today's message in this Awakened Sleeper series is Asleep in Church. Asleep in Church. Now, I'm just gonna keep it real. Today is one of those days that if you start dozing off on me, I am calling you out. Yes, sir, the, right next to you, the one with the red shirt, could you just nudge them? Because you can't fall asleep the day I'm talking about sleeping in church. But I think about this passage and my mind goes to a story that I was reading about this past week. This story is uh, in Africa and it was many years ago. And it was a farmer and this farmer, this is when there was a diamond rush in, in Africa, kind of like in the American West, you'd hear about the gold rush. People would travel long distances just to put a pan in the river and try to get some gold or go into the mines and in, in California. There was a diamond rush like that in Africa. And this particular farmer, he would just, as he's plowing, his, his head would be up in the skies just thinking about the diamonds in those African mountains and, and how he could maybe leave the toil of farming and go be a part of this diamond rush. As he would plant the crops, his head would just be somewhere else as he's planting the crops and he's thinking about, oh, the diamonds, I could be a part of this if I could just have the courage to leave this farm. I could be a part of this big diamond rush. And one day he did exactly that. He sold the farm. He sold the farm, took all the money, and went on and started participating in that diamond rush. The story is really sad because he actually didn't find any diamonds. 
he had wasted the sale of his home, and he ended up penniless, depressed, dejected, and ending up even ending his own life. The story, if we were to stop there, it's cautionary tale, right? But the story even goes further. The person who bought the farm in Africa was plowing one day in the same fields that the farmer had plowed and his hand to the plow and his eyes on the dirt and he saw this rock and he picked it up. He's like, that's cool, it's shiny. He went and showed it to a friend in town and they said, that's a diamond. He said, this is a diamond? Yeah, that's a diamond. He said, well, this farm is full of these. They're everywhere. Just so you know, this isn't a preacher story. You know, like a fish story, right? <laughs> that farm became the Kimberly Diamond Mine, the richest the world has ever known. The mine has been so dug up, you can see it from space. What do we learn? What do we to learn from this? Which farmer will you be? Asleep to your potential? Asleep to the provision that God has put right at your feet? Asleep to the dreams that, that God has birthed in your heart and he's made a way for those dreams to come true but you didn't realize that those dreams were to be fulfilled right here where you're planted. Not off somewhere where the grass is always greener. Are you gonna be somebody that sees what God has laid in the soil of your life? Or are you gonna be somebody who's always looking elsewhere, never seeing what God is doing? Today we're gonna wake up. We're gonna wake up to the opportunity, we're gonna wake up to the threats, we're gonna wake up no sleeping in this church. No sleeping. Another story that I read about are surrounded the Titanic. And you know the Titanic, you remember Leonardo DiCaprio, you know? Did that do it for you? Do you? Are you there now? Horrible tragedy, greatest maritime disaster that the world had ever seen. A tragic, an incredible story of loss and sacrifice and tragedy. The stories that came out of the Titanic are shocking. Um, one story was of a little boy, six years old. His name, his name was, I wrote it, where are you? His name was, yeah, Douglas Spedden. Douglas Spedden. Douglas Spedden went to sleep in first class that night. Everybody's happy. You can hear people playing on the decks of the, of the ship, and everything's happening, and he's cozy, and he's well taken care of. And his nanny tucked him into sleep that night, and he just went to sleep. And you would think, man, Douglas Spedden, a survivor of the Titanic, Six years old, what would a six-year-old remember of that? You know, the stories are incredible from the survivors. One survivor told the story about how uh, he, could not, he could no longer go to baseball games because the shouting and the suffering was so loud and echoed against the polar icebergs that when he went to a baseball game, it took him right back to those icy waters. Boy, that's graphic. So what did young six-year-old Spedden remember as he would grow older and tell about his adventure and this epic thing people would gather to listen funny thing 
little Spedden had absolutely nothing to share because he went to bed, tucked in by his nanny in first class, and he woke up in a 30-foot rescue boat. He slept through the whole thing. Slept through the whole thing. The story goes that when he woke up, he looked around and he, all he saw was the icebergs. And by this point, the dawn was rising and the sun was casting a shadow on the icebergs, really beautiful in the midst of the darkness, right? And little six-year-old, oblivious, didn't see the tragedy, didn't see the carnage. He looked around and he said, are we at the North Pole? But there's no Santa Claus. That's my best British accent. But he missed it. Could I just encourage us, let's not fall asleep on the threats and the tragedies that are around us. That's the first thing I wanna talk about, is let's open our eyes, let's wake up that there's some danger around us. There's some sinking ships around us. Let's wake up. Sometimes we can lull ourselves to sleep. If you have multiple children, if you're like me, my kids all had different, really strong personalities, different kinds of personalities. And it can be tempting that the kid that has a temperament that is mild, you're not as worried about. They get a little less of your shepherding. But then the other kid who is a strong personality, anybody? Anybody got a tear in their eye right now? You know, I'm talking strong. I'm, I've had one kid, they carved their initials on our refrigerator. I am here, you know? <laughs> they just got a look in their eye like, <laughs> And that kid gets all your prayers. <laughs> that kid gets all your conversations with your friends, and you may even say of the kid over here, oh, that's my easy one. Danger. You could mistake temperament for temperature. Listen, you don't know the sin that they're struggling with that is under the surface and hidden by their temperament. There may be sinking ships happening in their hearts. There may be empty philosophies that are gripping their souls. There may be things that are slipping and they're just quiet about it and they're easy and they're mild-mannered. You need to pray just as hard for the mild-tempered child as the hot-tempered child. Hey, it's just all salsa, it comes in different flavors. And we all have different taste buds for sin. We all have different struggles. And this is something Susan has reminded me of with our different kids is hey, hey, just because they seem like they're okay, listen, they're not okay. They're not okay. Let's keep our eyes open for the threats. Let's keep our eyes open. Let's wake up. Listen, every story I've ever heard of a spouse that packed their bags and was walking out, and then the husband comes to me or the wife comes to us, and they say, I just, I didn't see it coming. I didn't see it coming. I didn't see it coming. With a little more conversation, hear me. There's always signs that it's coming. Little conversations of, hey, maybe we should have counseling, and you blow it off. Hey, maybe we should, maybe we should be at church a little more, and you blow it off, and you blow it off, and you blow it off, and then you're shocked one day. What happened? You were asleep in your marriage. Let's not be asleep to the tragic 
ending of your marriage, the, the ships are sinking. Listen, financially, denial is a powerful thing. You're in denial that the money is going away. You're in denial that you're round the corner from disaster. And you don't wanna face it because it's hard. And it's gonna provoke some really hard conversations. And it's gonna cause you to say no to some really hard things. And it may cause you to take the kids out of this particular school that you've been paying for, or for coaching that you've been paying for, or for sports that you've been funding. But you've gotta tighten the belt because if you don't, it's gonna be gone. But denial just causes us to think that somehow, some way, it's gonna be okay. No, we gotta not sleep to the status of our finances, our careers. You need to see those warning signs, open your eyes. We need to wake up to the tragedy around us. We need to wake up to the things that are alarmed. We call, we call them in our culture right now, red flags. Is that a red flag? Pay attention to the red flags. Pay attention to those flags. Own it, wake up to the tragedies around us. Also wake up to the opportunities around us. All kinds of opportunities. Would fear hold you back from taking that leap of faith? Wake up, wake up. Would insecurity hold you back from, from going out on a date and believing that you could actually love someone or that they would love you? Wake up, wake up, there's opportunities all around you. Wake up to the shepherding of our kids, one conversation at a time, wake up. Let's, let's, let's dig into a little bit of this Eutychus story in Acts chapter 20. He was on the third floor and Paul was teaching. Now, please really strain, lean in, and imagine for yourself the room that he was in had no air conditioning, packed out, no AC, no AC. So it's humid, the body heat. Anybody that used to be in the furniture store, you're with me right now, you understand what that's like because we lived with it for over a decade when we'd all get packed in there and our little furniture store AC units could not keep up. They were like <laughs> And I'm thankful for these wonderful AC units, by the way. But in this upper room, it was humid. You know, Susan and I, we like different temperatures. She's hot, I'm cold. Anybody have thermostat wars? I like it cold. Raise your hands. Come on, it's okay. She likes it hot. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but she likes it really hot. She likes it Yoda Dagobah system hot. <laughs> I got the mic. I can do this. It's really fun for me. It's therapeutic right now. Can you imagine how hot the body heat, it almost casts a glow in the room because they, the Bible also says very clearly there were lamps lit, many lamps lit, torches and lamps, smoke in the room. They had no filtration. They opened a window or two. They're on the top floor, not the bottom floor where all the, the air and the breeze can just flow through. They're at the top floor. They just had windows. And Eutychus, that's why he's at one of those windows. He's like, oh, can I get a breath? And not only that, the torches and the candles are sucking the oxygen out of the room. They're consuming some of that oxygen. So with that said, that room was a challenging room to stay on point 
world changers, note takers for that long. Let's give the kid a break. It was a tough room to stay focused. It was a tough room to stay awake. It was a tough room. But Eutychus went over there and sat in the windowsill in that tough room. A, that tells me his parents were not helicopter parents. Because we would have caught that really quick in our family. Sit down, sit down, sit down. It also tells me that he's just trying to get a breath. This, what is God trying to tell us? I believe God is trying to tell us that, hey, for whatever excuses that he was in that position, sometimes we're gonna have obstacles to being awake. You're gonna have environmental conditions that are fighting against you from being awake. You're gonna have stressors in your life. You're gonna have relational pressures. You're gonna have busy seasons. Uh, you're gonna be distracted. <clears throat> and that's when God is saying, don't be on the back of your heels. That's when you need to be on the tip of your toenails. That's when you need to be on the balls of your feet. That's when you need to lean in. Don't lean back, lean in. You can lean in through the obstacles, through the circumstances that are making it difficult. Wake up, wake up, wake up in church. Wake up in church. Outsourcing. I outsource my lawn. That's something that I do. When I was a young father, I used to love doing my lawn. I would mow the lawn and just a window into, into your pastor, a window into the way that I'm made, I would mow, I would prune, I would weed eat, I would edge, and then I would stand on the opposite side of the street and I would admire what I had done. I'd just look at it. And I would, if I saw something a little, I would come over, oh, that's not. And then I would stand back and I would look at it. And this was earlier in our parenting and we had young children, very young children. And uh, it was young church too. So we, we were raising a young family. We were raising a young church at the time as well. And there was a lot of pressures there as well. A lot of time, not a lot of time, not a lot of free time. And Susan came to me and she said, hey, I've got a friend who just told me about this guy who is really affordable, who could mow our lawn, okay? And I really wanna ask you if we could do this. I think we should do this because that would give you some time with the kids. It would create some margin for the kids. So we found it in the budget at the time and we made the, the deal and we did that. But it was hard for me. It was hard for me because I never ever stood on the opposite side of the street and marveled at his work. Anybody with me now? I never stood over there and just marveled at what a great job they did because they were about 80% to my 100. Anybody like that? You, you, you struggle with that 20% that you're giving away. You struggle with that 20%. But I wanna talk to you about that 20% because in that 20% is awake or asleep. Some of us, you're 100 on everything. And the things that matter the most, you're asleep. Because you insist on being 100 on the lesser things, you're asleep on the greater things. There are some things that God puts you on the earth only for you to do, and it's not lawn work for me. It's parenting those kids. And if I need to make a sacrifice or eat out a little less or whatever it takes for me to be present for the kids, that's in the 100. That needs to be in the 100. My wife and I, we need to be in the 100. 
So outsourcing has its place, but you don't outsource the romance in your marriage. You don't outsource the companionship in your marriage. They don't get their fix from their girlfriends. As important as that is, you've gotta show up and satisfy an affection that is made for you. You're the only one on earth, ladies. You are the only one on earth. If you're married to a dude, listen, you are the only one on earth for him. Yeah. You're the only one on earth. I tell Susan this, you're my only one. You're it. Thank you, I got a little, oh, oh. No, no, think about this. You're it. So she's my hundred. She's my hundred. Decide what you can live with at the 80 for the privilege of the hundred. You've got to wake up to the hundred and delegate, outsource the 80, okay? We've got to be shrewd like that. We've got to wake up to the things that God is putting in our, in our care. It's so important, it's so important. That means you don't outsource your parenting, you don't outsource your marriage, and we do not outsource the mission of God for Keystone Church. We don't outsource, this is one thing, we have to be 100. Because we do not outsource the mission of God to make Jesus known to everybody that will listen. We don't outsource that mission to another nonprofit or a 501c3 or a compassion ministry. We don't outsource it to another church. We have to behave as if there's no one else coming. We have to own the mission as if we're the only one and God's counting on us and if it's not us, the rocks are gonna be the ones crying out. It's gotta be us and we have to own it. Now we have five other churches, we have five other 501c3s, I'm not saying we act like they don't exist, we celebrate that, but there's a posture of our heart that says God has given us a mission so we can't play games at this church. We gotta be serious and I'm so grateful to be a part of a church that gets excited every time we baptize somebody. A church that gets excited when we crush through uh, giving moments and we do far more than we had ever thought was possible. I love being a part of a church that leans in and says, I refuse to outsource the mission, we're gonna make a difference. Don't outsource the mission. Falling asleep looks like outsourcing. Falling asleep looks like outsourcing on the wrong things. Falling asleep looks like, uh, looks like us outsourcing our mission and falling asleep I wanna introduce you to this, I've seen it all over the web, looks like a meology rather than a theology. What does it look like to be asleep in church these days? Meology. Meology. To understand meology, let me take two seconds to describe what theology is. Theology, the Greek word theos, is the word for God, literally, theos. There it is. Theos. So when you are theology, you are logos of the theos. You are learning of the theos. You are learning about God. Theos says God is there and God is true and I want to know what he is. I wanna know who he is. I wanna know what he does, how he does it. I wanna know his heart. I wanna know you are in a posture to grab a truth that is there for you to grab. That's theos. With, with theology, God is in the center and we are entering in as a player in his game. He's it, he's the whole thing. 
On the other hand, meology approaches it a little differently. God is not the center, God is a player. I'm in the center. I'm in the center. What does God have to say to the desires I feel? What is God going to agree with? You know, if you were to see me at the gym, you will see me puffed up on the chest or the arms or the shoulders, but you will rarely see my legs puffed up because I'm that guy. I'm that guy. I'm that guy. I avoid leg day like the plague. Oop, leg day, I pulled something. Right? But understand this, whenever you go to the word of God, you need to anticipate and you can't duck, dodge, or avoid leg day. Because theology, you crash against hard truths because God is, and you don't change that. Meology, God is crashing into what you believe. And you'll brush a little aside over there, you'll tailor a little bit there, you'll change a little bit there until you have a God that agrees with you. You're avoiding leg day, and you're not getting any stronger, and you're disproportionate. You're not healthy. We find this everywhere. The danger of it is often those that would be preaching meology are really funny, cute, hilarious, bloggers, authors, podcasts. And we need to discern, what am I eating here? When I'm listening to this podcast, what am I eating here? Whenever I'm reading this book, what am I consuming right here? Is this someone that's taking me to God? Is this someone that is bringing the truth of God to me? And you can bring it in a humorous way, and you can bring it with funny stories, and you can bring it, Jesus did that, Jesus told parables, Jesus did all that. But at the end of the day, what's the posture? Are you reading into the Bible what you want it to say? Or is the Bible reading you? Like telling you, yeah, you're wrong there. Or hey, if you'll just put your chin up, you're not as bad as you think. Come on, you're doing okay. I don't want you to live in false condemnation. Come on, chin up. But what does the Bible say? What does God say? And when our preference collides with clear teaching of scripture, theology, God wins. Meology, I win. There are those right now that are taking long-held truths, clear biblical teaching, and they are totally twisting scripture to make it fit the, the current cultural narrative. You gotta know this. The most recent example this past week that I saw, shocking, stunning, shocking, Sunday sermon by a junior research fellow at the University of Cambridge drew some backlash for reportedly claiming that Jesus Christ has historically been depicted with a trans body. I mean, it's, it's absurd. Now, if you go Googling this, that scholar from Cambridge, his name is Heath. My brother's name is Heath. And in a few months, he'll be teaching at Cambridge. Not the same Heath, okay? Just, can I just help you? Not the same Heath. This is not Heath Aaron Thomas, somebody else. But I can't imagine a more absurd 
ridiculous, cartoonish, clownish attempt to bend scripture and biblical history into a current narrative than that comment. As if they were all doing it with this end game in mind. Something that's hot on the presses in 2022 that they were in 1531 when they were drawing and painting and doing all of these wonderful cathedrals that they were thinking, hey, I'm gonna paint Jesus in a trans body. It's absurd, but that's what we do. We take truths like one man, one woman in marriage. That's marriage, that's biblical marriage. Biblical marriage, according to the word of God, is a man and a woman in marriage. Biblical intimacy is reserved for a man and a woman in marriage. If you are listening to someone who picks up a podcast and tries to tell you through scripture that that is not God's definition of marriage, that is a meology, not a theology, okay? You need to know that. Look, I'm not, I'm not shouting names. I'm not hating on anybody. I'm just trying to help you to not be deceived by a posture that says, I so desperately wanna conform to the cultural narrative. I'm willing to not only ignore scripture, I'm willing to go through scripture that my narrative will be loud. It's brutal. This is a big deal. This is something that we need to to think through. Jesus, with the woman who was caught in adultery, do you know that story? There was a woman who was caught in adultery and she was brought before Jesus. And I wanna take this story and I wanna illustrate the way that Jesus would have us deal with hard truths. She was caught in adultery, dragged before Jesus. This is a brutal moment. You can almost feel the hate from those that dragged her from the adulterous bed before Jesus. You can, right now, 2,000 years later, we can feel an incredible empathy for her in her shamed, exposed state. And I think we're supposed to. Jesus then, the story goes, as she is there before him, and they're, they're crossing their arms saying, how do you handle this? Will you be a liberal or will you be a conservative? How are you gonna handle this? Jesus is genius. He begins writing in the sand. Don't let anybody tell you they know what Jesus was writing in the sand. We don't know. We can only guess. One of the guesses is that he was writing all of their sins in the sand, which is a fun guess when it's a movie and you're thinking of these judgy people, right? But we do know whatever he wrote, they begin to lay down their rocks and they begin to walk away. And for some, that's where the story ends. The compassion of Christ. The justice of Christ, right? And his story is no less than all of those things. But you cannot miss the ending of the story where he looked at her and he said to her, the same compassion that saw her, who knew her story and knew more than you and I know. He knew who she was. He knew her story from childhood. He knew the abuse. He knew the neglect. He knew the, uh, the, the lack of affection. He knew all of that. And he brought all of that into this moment. And he said to her, now go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. Oh, whoa, whoa, but Jesus is the one who makes me feel good. Jesus is the one 
who just encourages me. Jesus is the one who's just the lifter of my head, and he does encourage you, and he is the lifter of your chin, and he is the one that wants to power you up, absolutely. But also in Matthew chapter 4, 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You can have compassion, and we should, but we also must be armed with the truth of God in our compassion. Sometimes we become compassionate and we, we stop listening. The story outweighs his story. We've gotta keep his story in our hearts because the most compassionate thing you can do for someone who's caught in a pattern like that is to say, God loves you. There's a better way. Do you know I have friends? I have friends that I don't agree with and I love them and they know I love them. And they know, because I've been loving them for too long to deny it, right? We've been loving them for too long to deny it, that though we disagree, I love you enough to say it's wrong, but I love you, and I'm going nowhere. I'm with you. We sometimes are looking for a Jesus who will celebrate the adultery affirm the adultery or advocate her adultery. Jesus did none of those things. Jesus said, go and sin no more. We're a church that believes in the word of God that if we're gonna be awake, if we're gonna be awake, the best thing we can do is bring them the truth of God, that this is what marriage is. And if you'll lean in, it'll bless your life. This is what, this is what it looks like to handle your money without greed, materialism, and stinginess. This is what it looks like, and if you'll embrace it, God will blow your mind. This is what it looks like to be a man. This is what it looks like to be a woman. Right? We're gonna wake up in church. We're gonna wake up in church. Not only that, Paul went over, bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, don't be alarmed, for his life is in him. And they were, they were not <coughs> a little comforted. They were a lot comforted. This should beckon you to the life of Christ where Jesus in Luke chapter seven raised a widow's son back to life. This should make you think about in Luke chapter eight where Jesus brought a daughter back to life. This should make you think of Jesus in front of his friend, his friend Lazarus's tomb where he brought him back to life. And here you see the apostle Paul drawing on the same power that Jesus had. And that same power, my friend, is for you. We sang about it just a moment ago. Listen to me, God gives life to those sleeping. So we've gotta get people to God. Maybe you need to come alive today. Don't just try to pump yourself up and we're not gonna try to just twist your arm to get you there. You need to fall in love with Jesus. Fall in love with God again. Remember how he saved you. For a person like me, I became a Christ follower when I was eight, eight years old. That means I used my imagination to say, God, who would I have been had I not found Jesus? Would I have been one of those stories of a rebellious preacher's kid 
were it not for Jesus. Thank you, God. Who would I have married if I didn't have Jesus and parents that prayed for me? Who would I have married? How would I have parented if I didn't lean into Christ? Oh, thank you, God. What a miserable person I would be if it wasn't for your power. Thank you, God. And then I get in this room and I sing loud because I remember the grace and the mercy of God. We sing from the grace and the mercy of God. So remind yourself of the grace and the mercy of God today. Remind yourself that God once brought you spiritually from death to life. Remind yourself that God is still in the healing business, that he's in the life from death business. And today, let's leave this place, church, committed to life, committed to light, committed to being raisers of the dead with the same power that raised Christ from the grave. Commit yourself to be awake. Commit yourself to lean in. From now on, I sing louder. From now on, I'm thinking about who I can bring. From now on, I'm gonna take a risk and serve because I'm on, I'm not asleep. I'm a contributor, not a consumer. Father, I thank you for what you're doing today at Keystone Church, that we would awaken the sleepers. Revival, church alive, no turning back. Church is not a slice in the pie. It's, God, you're the pie. You're my everything. I pray for passion in this place. I pray that we, we come alive, never be the same. You're good and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.